Hello there and welcome to a brand new episode of the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is George Breer. I'm a senior content manager here at Sports Pro. And alongside me, as always, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Mr. Tom Bassam, our news editor. Tom, it's good to be back. Good to be back, mate. Yeah. Have you been keeping up with the Tour de France? Did you check in on stage one, two, three? What are your thoughts so far? Unfortunately, um, and this will be no surprise to regular listeners, my attention has been somewhat taken this weekend um, by the Ashes and some of the controversy therein. Did you catch the game on Sunday, Tom? Uh, Yeah, I did, mate. Unlike you, it seems like I've got the attention span to cross over a couple of sports. So, yes, I've been keeping up on the Aussie cheating scandal, but also checking in on how Adam Yates is getting on in the yellow jersey quest for this year's tour. And also, I don't know if you're watching yesterday, Mark Cavendish finished sixth on the third stage. Just missing out on the opportunity to take the all-time record for stage wins at the tour. So, little update for you, George. Just you know, I'm going to I'm going to be keeping track every single week. I promise you, Tom. On my honour, I will be watching Tour de France Unchained at least episode one this week. We'll be coming back in next. You week. do know that's not live. <laughs> <laughs> ITV4 highlights, George. Yeah. Anytime you want, mate. So that can be cut if needs be by <laughs> next week uh, from the pod. Anyway, Tom. Whilst I could talk to you about this weekend's sport forever. I would be remiss to do so because alongside us, we have podcasting royalty. We have our gun for hire on the podcasts at Sports Pro, both on the stream time and here on the, on the Sports Pro podcast. It's Steve McCaskill. Now, unfortunately, we can't be showing all the video, but those that would be watching would see Steve's facial hair has grown back after a bit of an experimental phase this weekend. Is that fair to say, Steve? Yes, uh, it was uh, sculpted in the manner of WWE superstar Sheamus in honour of the WWE coming back for a premium live event in London for the first time in 20 years. It's a fantastic costume that you put together to embody Sheamus. How was it? You were there both nights, I believe? Yep, it was there for Smackdown on the Friday and then Money the Bank itself on Saturday. The crowd was predictably raucous. The action on the mat was fantastic. As ever, we like to have a bit of a sports business angle on there. It was the WWE's highest grossing arena show ever on Saturday, which, given how much my tickets cost, I am not surprised. And if you want to uh, check out Steve's get-up for his weekend of WWE, and you haven't used your rate limit on Twitter yet, there's a picture posted alongside a scary-looking bloke with mutton chops, at Mickey Caskill, on Twitter. Well worth a look if you haven't seen it already. I would say, uh, I'm sure my friend will be delighted to be described as that. And also, perhaps it's no surprise that Elon Musk decided to impose those limits after seeing me around. If anything, for me, it's a business case to get that picture up in the National Portrait Gallery uh, (laughs) before the week is out. Anyway, from one mega sporting event that Steve McCaskill has attended to another, this week marks the beginning of Wimbledon. Now, Steve, as the royalty that I mentioned, you've had a little behind-the-scenes tour before the grass is freshly mown for the championships. Yes, so as ever, Wimbledon and IBM have been playing a lot of things tech-wise for this year's championship. And a bit of background, Wimbledon, its whole partnership strategy is focused around blue-chip organizations that add value to the tournament and there's arguably no bigger blue chip organization than IBM they're saying nobody was ever fired for buying IBM their partnership has lasted for about three decades now and Wimbledon places a lot of stock on its technological capabilities because it believes it can help it maintain its position as the most prestigious of tennis's four grand slams alongside things like the the grounds the tradition 
there's quite significant tech operation at SW19. Most people will probably never know where it is because it's sort of in the back of the grounds. The most famous bit is arguably the roof, which is often where the BBC weather is from each morning. It's called the bunker, which perhaps references the fact that part of it is, if not underground, it's lower ground. There's lots of wires, lots of people collecting stats, lots of screens. And all of this powers Wimbledon's app, its website, the stats that go through to the broadcasters like the BBC. It's a story I've been following for the past 10 years or so. And uh, slowly but surely, artificial intelligence has become part of the operation at Wimbledon. They've been using AI to automatically create highlights, for example. So basically, when Wimbledon sells its rights to the BBC, it retains things called reserve rights, which means it's allowed to use 60 seconds of footage for its own channels. Now, AI, which measures things like not just the stats, but also the crowd reaction, the ball, it can get as much content as possible into those 60 seconds while still maintaining its contractual obligations. So it's been using AI for a long time. It's not always called it AI. IBM could do something called cognitive computing, but with generative AI being such a hot topic this year, we're seeing lots of tech vendors, we're seeing lots of sports organizations try to include it in their events and their products. And so what IBM is using generative AI at Wimbledon this year is for commentary. So it's generating audio commentary for these highlights to give it the same treatment as for the, the outer courts as the, the show courts. It's not based on the human commentator, it's entirely generated. So those clips, they'll have audio commentary and it's still experimental. You know, in terms of how you can scale video production, it's quite big. It also will help engage more fans. And I guess there's also the scope to add more languages. So regardless of where you are in the world, you can get localized commentary that just would not be feasible otherwise. The other way that they're innovating this year is they're using AI on draw analysis. So when the draw came out last week, as it, as it does typically a couple of days before the first day's play, everyone looks at the routes to the final. They're like, Who's going to meet at the quarterfinals? Who's going to meet the semifinals? You know, in, in previous years, we'd be like, what's Murray's chances, for example? And it's a source of debate. And a lot of this debate is through perception, also things like world rankings. What IBM and Wimbledon are doing this year, they're analyzing all the permutations to create an idea of how difficult one player's draw is or path is to the final. So that's happened for the first time this year. Uh, and the idea is that you can have an actual metric for a certain player Let's say, for example, you draw Andy Murray, who's unranked in the first round, but you're the, you're, the, you're the seventh seed. That's quite a tough first match. So it's all about adding debate. It's all about engaging fans. As you say, Steve, the relationship with IBM and Wimbledon's relationship with the AI capabilities of IBM have been developing steadily and surely over the last few years, particularly I know last year they were using AI to provide some context and provide narrative around matchups, particularly in the early rounds of the tournament where players may be less well known as others. But Tom, why do you think a property like Wimbledon or an event like Wimbledon needs to be using these capabilities and these technologies in the most innovative ways possible? particularly when, you know, it can lean on such a strong history and so much tradition and, and a very strong brand already. Why is there so much focus, do you think, from, from Wimbledon to really lean into these tech-first experiences? I think partly it's about not being left behind, but also working from a position of strength, right? Like the best businesses and the best organisations don't sit on their laurels. At times where they are seemingly on a positive swing that the best ones use that time in order to make sure that they're future proof and i think this can definitely be seen as part of that 
I don't think anything that you see on the consumer end of what Wimbledon, IBM are doing in AI is particularly groundbreaking or will even move the needle that much. But what it does mean is that they're exploring those technologies. And, and when it comes to a time where they are more effective and they actually provide like a, a, a use at least on the front end, they'll be ready. On the back end, I imagine, and like, I don't, I can't profess to know the, the sort of intimacies of Wimbledon's operation and how it interacts with its broadcasters, perhaps in the same way that Steve does. But I imagine that on the back end, there's, they're already finding those use cases. They're already deploying that technology in a way that like helps with their operations. So even with those, it's probably still a case of like, this stuff is very early, but it's good to be early on it because it means when the time comes for that gear shift to change, you're in a good position to do so. And Steve, what, what do you think some of those use cases are? You know, why is there such a, a compelling case to be using AI-powered and, and generative AI-powered features as part of their product? Well, the thing about AI, and you know, broadly speaking, is it allows you to do things that just aren't possible doing it manually, or it allows you to scale things. And if you look at Wimbledon specifically, its entire operation, even its commercial operation, is geared towards being that most prestigious of all Grand Slams. And so it wants to be at the forefront. IBM and Wimbledon is arguably the most celebrated technological partnership in the industry because it's been around for so long and it's always been trying new things. And again, it's been using AI a lot longer than the current hype train has been around. So it's a way for Wimbledon to engage more fans around the world. Most people probably will never go to Wimbledon. So it's about bringing Wimbledon to them if that's using AI to create localized commentary, creating new sources of debate that keeps that conversation going, enhances the digital products, that will be the main way that many people interact with the tournament. So that's why it's interested. I think Wimbledon's more interested for what AI can do rather than being seen to be, be using AI. It just happens to be that it's quite a forward-thinking partnership. It's already been on the roadmap. And I actually asked them, both the Oil England Club and an IBM, whether they were doing this for because they felt they needed to be seem to be doing it and they were, they were adamant no it's just you know they have these it's continuous iteration at Wimbledon they have meetings several times a year to discuss the roadmap and some things get introduced this year some things we introduce next so I think it's all about bringing that tournament to as many people as possible and maintaining that status at the top of the tennis world. It's a really interesting balance that you talk about there because Wimbledon almost has a mythology around the location, the aesthetics of Wimbledon, I think, are very much mythologized across the industry. But then there is also the importance of bringing that to the largest number of people possible, creating, you know, the largest amount of engagement possible, and obviously monetizing that engagement where possible. Two partnerships that we've seen this year that really seem to have hit all of those areas is between Wimbledon, Fortnite and Roblox. Can you sort of talk me through some of those, Steve? Yeah, so we start off with Roblox because that started last year. For all of the talk about the metaverse, talk about digital environments and, and whatnot, the two most successful are environments that don't even describe themselves as metaverse, and that's Roblox and Fortnite, which we'll come to in a bit. And part of that is because their ability to engage younger audiences not just teenagers and in Roblox case, even younger. They've created this environment in which young people want to spend time, that they want to interact with each other and with creators. And Roblox particularly gives brands and creators the tools to do this. And we've, we've seen some big names going to Roblox, NFL, NHL, Nike. What Roblox offers Wimbledon is that audience. And what Wimbledon offers Roblox is another source of content and a high profile partner. And what Wimbledon's done in Roblox is basically digitally recreate 
part of the grounds and create a social space. There's a virtual recreation of Centre Court, for example, and there's quizzes, there's social elements to it, there's games. So they're trying to create a place that people want to spend time in. That way they're going to engage with the tournament and you know become the next generation of Wimbledon fans. This is an audience that either doesn't watch Wimbledon or won't watch Wimbledon the same way that you and I will watch on the BBC, for example. And the idea is to convert them into long-term fans. It speaks to that desire as well that you talked about to be at Wimbledon, right? It's such an exclusive opportunity. And we've seen, you know, the queue and some of the stories that we've seen this week, the frustrations that people have and not being able to access such a prestigious event. But for that global audience, accessing Wimble World, as it's called on Roblox, being able to mow the lawn, I think is one of the games and to interact on Centre Court, for instance, as well, and explore that environment is a very compelling proposition, right? To a digitally native younger fan. Absolutely. I did hear some people scoff at the idea of mowing the virtual lawn, but a very popular game in some circles is Power Wash Simulator. So there is, there is an audi- <laughs> audio audience for that if you can gamify it. Is that the next edition of Sports Pro Reviews? Power Wash Simulator? Well, there is a game where you can do something similar to restore a stadium, if you wish. Uh, and there's a lot of power washing and, and, and virtual mending <laughs> to be done. So watch this space. A watch along coming to your screen soon. Sports Pro goes on Twitch. It's a nice segue into Fortnite because with Fortnite, you don't necessarily need to create that use case because Fortnite's core proposition is already so popular. And what Wimbledon is doing in Fortnite is it's taking those mechanics and giving it an entirely new way to play the game. So it's almost like a race that they've got. And again, it's about interacting with the digital representation of physical environments. So you go past London landmarks, you go through Wimbledon Village, you go past Andy Murray's golden post box, which he received for winning gold at Wimbledon at the 2012 Olympics. And again, you're, you're trying to get to Wimbledon as quickly as possible. Um, and there's a competition element where if you beat Andy Murray's time, you're into, into a prize draw. So it's about going to places where younger audiences are, where they want to spend time, creating something they actually want to do and engaging them on their terms. Yeah, you said that some people might scoff at a lawn mowing experience, but the statistics suggest that a lot of people aren't scoffing at that opportunity. Last year saw 13 million people visit Wimble World, 80% of which were under 24. And I think Wimble World represents one of the most successful environments that Roblox has created. Similarly this year, I think it's the race to Wimbledon that prize draw is sponsored by Amex. So there's another piece of sponsorship inventory at quite a high value. I think they get tickets, travel and accommodation for the men's final in 2024. So particularly for a property like Wimbledon, where sponsorship inventory is quite scarce, particularly, you know, branding opportunities across the physical space itself. There's a huge competitive advantage to be gained by properly accessing these digital worlds. And particularly if we're looking at some of those Roblox stats with 80%, 80%, so my rudimentary maths are sort of 8, 9 million people under the age of 24 engaging with that space. That's a vital demographic and a hugely valuable demographic for sponsors to be hitting. Absolutely. And going back to Wimbledon's commercial strategy, it's all about partnerships and supplier agreements. So Rolex on the clocks, you've got IBM next to the shot track. It doesn't just do pitch side advertising per se, although the Barclays logo is on the umpire's chair this year. So Having these digital environments creates additional inventory. It creates new opportunities for brands to partner with Wimbledon in a way that it might not necessarily do through traditional means. And as you say, it's reaching out to an entirely new audience. Although it is worth pointing out at this point that Roblox is actually opening up, well, not necessarily opening up its platform. This platform's always been available to older audiences, but it's allowing creators to create 
experiences specifically for older audiences. We might bring more audiences into the Roblox ecosystem. So even though these experiences are designed for younger users, there might be a bit of crossover appeal. So yeah, absolutely. It, it's creating added value for partners, entire new routes to reach audience. Again, for, for Wimbledon, that's only a good thing. Tom, we've talked a lot in previous episodes about the approach that's taken by these very historical sports events, the Masters being one, Test cricket being another, which typically have older demographics, um, one that prefer a lighter touch when it comes to commercialization and sponsorships. And do you think Wimbledon are really in that tier one of the approach to, to balancing sort of historical and, and tradition, well, historical importance and tradition alongside a slightly more agile um, commercial approach and engagement strategy? I think, as Steve said earlier, they are the envy of many of those kind of heritage properties. The way they've done this is like incredibly innovative and dates back a long, long time. Like You probably would say it's Wimbledon and the Masters when it comes to setting those kind of standards. And it means that like other properties have to take a different route because otherwise they are literally going to be just copycatting on that same strategy. And the other thing to point out about Wimbledon is it knows this. So I'm pretty sure it could probably get more money for its domestic TV rights than it does with the BBC. But it knows that the blanket coverage that the BBC provides in the UK helps its appeal elsewhere because people from abroad look in and know it's this major event in the UK. It's very quintessentially English, they still want a fair value for, for their rights, but I'm sure they could get more by going behind a paywall, but they don't. And that's all part of the same philosophy. Well, from the digital side to the physical side, there's been a few issues with day one of Wimbledon that launched yesterday. The first being the famous Wimbledon queue. There were some complaints there due to increased security checks and significant delays on behalf of Just Stop Oil. Tom, did you see any of that? What I saw was lots of people who were saying it's taking me a lot longer than it used to to get into the venue. And you can kind of understand why Wimbledon want, want to do that. Just Up Oil have been pretty effective in getting their way into all number of sporting events this summer. So a little bit of additional security is understandable. Perhaps it could have been thought about ahead of time, thinking about like what can we do to ensure that the additional checks that we do have to do don't result in a much longer queue. So whether or not that's providing extra security personnel, that's like a technological innovation in order to process people quicker. Uh, there's, there's definitely things that probably could have been done, but like at the same time, from Wimbledon's perspective, I think they'd rather have people moaning about the queue than having their... Uh, Sense court shut down for five hours. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think going back to the profile of Wimbledon, the queue is a large part of that mystique. And although they do have capabilities of distributing digital tickets and managing online queue, it's, it's, it's part, part of its appeal. Although one thing I would say is, although they didn't want people getting on centre court, they did have a bit of a bit of trouble drying it. Aided by Novak Djokovic. And a leaf blower in the end. <laughs> well, speaking of Novak Djokovic, lucky that there was a slight delay to his game because BBC were having a few troubles in broadcasting it also. Steve, did you pick up on that? They missed the beginning of Novak Djokovic's match. I'm not, I'm not sure what caused the technical mishap, but there was a... What were you doing in the cabin before uh, before the week started, <laughs> Steve? Any sab acts of sabotage? I can categorically confirm I was not <laughs> in the IBM bunker at the time. And I think the wonderful security staff would have, would have rooted out any such attempt. So, yes, it was an iPlayer glitch, I believe, that stopped people from watching the beginning of his title defence. Various media outlets have talked about the outrage that's been seen over Twitter. Um, if you're lucky enough to bypass a thousand tweets a day rule that's been implemented. Slightly tongue-in-cheek question, but does it really matter that it's delayed by a few minutes? 
For a Novak Djokovic game, no, probably not. Uh, like, <laughs> yeah. Who cares? Uh, it was a breakdown. That's a collector's item. Uh, true, true. I mean, but he hasn't lost that Wimbledon in, what, like 2,000 days or something insane. It would matter more if it was, I don't know, much later on in the tournament, but an opening round game against a much lower ranked opponent when the BBC on their linear coverage, which is still probably the dominant consumption method for most people, can just cut to another game. Doesn't matter massively. They'll probably be a bit embarrassed internally. They're pretty proud of their very robust tech and their like in-house ability to stream lots of things at the same time. And they've like acknowledged the fact that they had a, a technical issue in a statement. But I don't think it matters particularly. I think by the end of two weeks, people won't remember. I think the Q thing could become a, a bigger issue over the course of the week if that story continues to rumble on. But then similarly, a protest disruption could also be a major story too if that was uh, allowed to continue. I think streaming is very hard to do, especially when doing it on the scale that the BBC does at Wimbledon. And I think the BBC is better than most at this. So it just yeah. shows what a difficult challenge it is. Yeah, I agree. My biggest takeaway from that story really was how that was the first time I can think of something like that having happened. Um, the BBC is normally rock solid. It's it's usually uh, BBC's uh, commercial rival in the UK, the ITV, that attracts these headlines. Although, to be fair, ITV's not done it in a while. I think it's perhaps a bit unfair that I've raised something that happened about 10 years ago. Well, we know which side of the public broadcasting fence Steve McCaskill sits on, but that's a debate for another time. Let's have a, a look at some of the sponsorship landscape for this year's tournament. Our sponsorship marketing expert, Sam Karp, um, did a great piece where he reviewed all of the, the different partnerships for this year and some of the interesting talking points. So let's uh, rip off that piece shamelessly for the next few minutes now, gents. <laughs> let's start with Barclays. I'm sure there'll be plenty of people who are writhing around with excitement at Barclays being announced as the new banking partner taking over from HSBC to the tune of £20 million per year. But it's not all rosy on the Barclays side of the fence, is it, Tom? No, we've seen a mini campaign launched by like some quite notable figures in British public life. Actress Emma Thompson, film director Richard Curtis, famously directed for Weddings and a Funeral and many other lovely rom-coms, um, <laughs> have uh, sort of written an open letter to the All England Lawn and Tennis Club, criticising Barclays for providing very, very significant funding to the fossil fuel industry, and that it, that's not the right profile of partner that Wimbledon should be looking at. And I guess it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier and the prestige partners that Wimbledon can call on when it needs them saying that there needs to be sort of some redress made here to basically kind of this doesn't align with what Wimbledon's about right like it's a grass court tournament it's played outside and if, if your partners are actively in the words of the, the people behind this initiative if they're actively damaging that environment then those two things don't ally with what Wimbledon wants to be doing I think this is something we're probably going to see more and more of in the sponsorship space. A lot more scrutiny, I think, paid to pe who people are partnering with and doing deals with and where often their money goes and whether or not this is what this represents for that brand. I mean, like, from my perspective, it seems to be a fair enough campaign, fair enough allegation to be making. It's not baseless. It's actually, I think it's good in, in that it creates that conversation around what we should be demanding from our sports partners as an industry. Steve, how difficult a landscape is this to navigate for sports events and sports properties? Um, we probably saw this issue come to a head most fervently with British Cycling and its partnership with Shell that had quite significant collateral damage on the back of it. But given the sheer number of sponsors that sports events attract, given the 
incredible complexity of climate impact when it comes to particularly financial institutions and the partners that they essentially bankroll or they finance. Is this a case of there is no level of due diligence that is possible here to vet every single partner, look at all of the various environmental impacts, or is it a case of sort of not scoring open goals? I wouldn't classify this particular partnership on the same level as criticizing and Shell in terms of its controversy. There you have an energy company partnering with a uh, governing body for an activity that's supposed to help for the environment. It's not quite as clean cut as that. I think it is difficult for the sports industry. They've got to find revenue from somewhere. It might be quite difficult to find revenue. And a company like Barclays, again, it's a blue chip sponsor. It's perhaps more agreeable to most people than other industries. And I think I agree with Tom. People are having the conversation now. How far does this go down the supply chain? I think what Wimbledon will say specifically to this partnership is that Barclays are working on grassroots programs, which gets people involved in sport and other wider initiatives. I cannot imagine that the All England Club, with such careful consideration for its partners, hasn't thought this through, you know, potential backlash. It's a difficult landscape out there. I think it's definitely a hierarchy in terms of which type of organisations are more agreeable than others. And I think there's other examples of sponsorships that perhaps are more trying to justify, for example, the 100 partnering with KP Snacks. You no, know, it's about promoting sport and you're partnering with Chris. I think that's perhaps a bit more of a a disconnect than Wimbledon and Barclays. It can be very hard for properties and events to predict which partnerships are going to get particular backlash. Just to look at Barclays, Barclays are a fairly new title sponsor of the WSL. That's almost gone unremarked when it comes to any public backlash on these issues. Again, another sporting property that I think represents more than just, you know, like rampant sporting commercialism, for instance. How are you able to plan when it can be seemingly random which partnerships get public ire and which don't. And again, that's another partnership that's been a hu- huge success for the WSL. But I think it's what Tom says. It's about, you know, Wimbledon is a, a grass court tournament. It's relying on the, you know, the environment to a certain extent. And also its position in not just the British sporting calendar, but British, British society. And it's going to attract a different type of criticism to football, for example. I think that's the main reason why. I think it's just much more prominent, much more intrinsic to, to certain values. On the subject of Barclays, it's interesting to see some of the activation that they have planned for this year. We've already spoken quite a lot today about the difficulty when it comes to branding and the toned down approach that Wimbledon takes to its branding. But Barclays seem to have taken a, a slightly more agile approach off the court when it comes to their branding and some of the activations around the event. Steve, have you seen any of those? No, I haven't seen too many of the off-court activations beyond, I know they're working with New England Club on those grassroots initiatives. I know there's a, a financing element. And again, I want to come back to it. I'm still trying to work out why they're on the, the umpire chair, given that I think that used to be uh, Robinson's and Slazenger. And of course, there was a fridge in the umpire's chair for drinks. I'm wondering if those grass court initiatives are why it's allowed to be on the umpire chair because they're growing the sport of tennis. That's my biggest takeaway from that. The end of the Robinsons deal, 86 years as well as a partner, is absolutely incredible. Just as a thing that's lasted 86 years, let alone talking about... It's very existential of you, Tom. I know, yeah, <laughs> it really is. Look, while, while they're on the umpire chair, probably because that, that inventory was available. Um, but 
They are also launching, oh, this is great, got to commend anyone who came up with this, the Deuce Bar is Barclays branded this year, which uh, is a refreshment option for fans. Free juice at the Deuce Bar. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So that right there probably tells its own story. And they've got other like interesting things around the venue. A take on TFO simulator, like there's a kind of queue activation, uh, the Barclays Clubhouse. So yeah, the financial institutions, I always think like... What, what, what are you like? What, what can you do on the ground? You're a bank. Like no one's going to be. You're not going to be selling mortgages whilst. Uh, well, never well, know at Wimbledon. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, maybe it's the right audience. But I think they they always have to be quite creative because it isn't the most natural fit in terms of providing like on-site experiences. And um, it sounds like whoever they've worked with on this has done a fairly decent job. That's two jokes. I think that will be at Wimbledon this year that American audiences may not understand. And correct me if I'm wrong. Please write in. But course they call it deuce so that won't work and then i don't believe they use the word fortnight so wimbledon fortnight doesn't really work i was thinking when i was covering the original story so maybe it's just me sounds like you got the first two gags for your newsletter written already now steve i'm not sure i could do a better job than what sam's done to be honest well speaking of sam's feature for those that have an appetite to uncover all of the sponsorships at wimbledon what they mean and what they are doing please do check out that article on the sports pro website it is well worth a read now gents before i leave you to head back to bbc iplayer if it's working and tune into the latest games around the courts uh, are either of you going this year Steve, I'm sure, as a big name in the media industry, there's some hospitality with your name written all over it. I will be attending, yes. I'm ending down on Friday to start my weekend off right. Good stuff, Tom. Unfortunately not. No invites for me yet this year, so if there are any listeners out there who want to uh, comp me a ticket and take me along, I'm really good company in hospitality venues and will provide you a lot of entertainment. (laughs) I thought this was win a date with Tom Bassam. (laughs) Very well could be. (laughs) That's the new feature for next week. Well, Steve, I'm also free on Friday afternoon if, uh, you know, if you ever need some company during that trip. You're not free, George. You've got plenty of Tour de France catch-up to do. <laughs> and I will inform security not to let you in. Well, I'll see you both at the Take On TFO Simulator, Barclays branded, of course. But in the meantime, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for previewing a great fortnight in the sporting calendar. And until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.